Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. You've got questions, we've got answers. From the boardroom to the bedroom, car lines to college, single, married, or single again, we're bringing real answers to help you live and love your grit and grace life. Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. I'm Darlene Brock. Hey friends, I'm Julie Bender. Julie, I know you've never done anything embarrassing in your entire life. (laughs) I couldn't even let you finish the sentence. I feel like I am just an embarrassing person. It is what it is. It's fine. It's fine. And you know what? I don't think I get embarrassed anymore. I think I don't care that I do stupid things. It doesn't matter. Okay, good. I mean, because we all do them. Let's be honest. Yeah, we do. And there are things that we probably regret. But before we go down that road... Let's talk about some of those embarrassing moments in life that we've probably all done and maybe not admitted. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever waved at someone who wasn't waving at you? Oh, absolutely. Like emphatically waving? Yeah. Hi. Oh, not me. And smiled and looked behind you and realized, oh, that's who they were waving at, not (laughs) me. Yeah. All right. Going into the public restroom in a panic because you drank too much water on the way to the store, only to realize you are passing the urinal on the way out the door. <laughs> Whoopsie days. I've done it. Uh-huh. I've done it. Um, have you ever thought you were texting one person only to find out you sent it to another? Like maybe you thought you were texting your spouse to complain about your mother, but you texted your mother to complain about your mother. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go very well. All right. I've lived through this one. Taking your sweet, hard of hearing father-in-law to the doctor while in the waiting room, he speaks very loudly and says things like, oh, did you see that sweet black man over there in the corner? And you go, oh, yeah, Pop. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yep. What about accidentally connecting your Fitbit or your Apple Watch to Facebook to discover that the whole world now knows you only walked 900 steps yesterday? (laughs) I mean, it was Sunday on the couch, church from home. Had different priorities that day. Yep. All right. Trying on a jacket, laying across the rack to only realize the jacket belonged to the girl next to you who was trying on a different one. (laughs) I like your style. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's one thing to be embarrassed by little things like that you've done in life, but it's a whole nother thing to be walking in shame because of embarrassing parts of your past. And, you know, when, when we are stuck in that situation, we're really given over to fear of judgment of ourselves, of others, and that is not the kind of grit and grace life we want any of us to be living. No, and to realize that all women of strength have had life mistakes. We have not avoided them. Actually, it's often those life choices that we have become strong. We've gained wisdom. We have grown and live richer lives. But still, we don't always want to reveal them to other people. We kind of want to hide them. Mm -hmm. Well, today, a very strong, brave woman, one of the writers at Grit and Grace Life, Lila Shell, is going to join us. And she's going to share her life story. And it's one that she has struggled with for years, feeling that if people were to know it, she would not be perceived as strong, but instead she would be judged. And so we're so grateful that she is willing to go first today to share some of the hard parts of her story. Lila, welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Yeah. Hey, before we jump all the way into your story, tell us a little bit about you. What's a normal day like in your life? 
Oh gosh. Um, it's really busy. Um, I wake up early, fight with my kids to get out the door, um, <laughs> making lunches, rushing to work. I always think like, no matter how much time I have, I'm always late, um, going to work, you know, always doing something for something else on my lunch, school council or, you know, baseball or rushing home, making dinner, driving my kids around, probably going to like a volunteer meeting of some sort and then like crashing at 10 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, so like most moms in America. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The life of a working mom. Yeah. Actually, all moms are working. I, I sure. guess. I love but that is life. an added layer. <laughs> it is. Okay. Not going there. There are millions of moms that relate to the day that you just described. I know it was my days too when my girls were growing up. I kind of was excited when they both went to college and I didn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Sorry, daughters. Um, but they may or may not relate to the past, the life that you had before where you are now. And I know one that you were often embarrassed to talk about and a little bit reticent. So can you... Uh, tell us why um I think like you know you society is a way of like telling you how you're supposed to do things right mm -hmm. and I don't like know who they are but like they say you should mm -hmm. you know meet your soulmate in high school date in college get married have kids buy a house have a white picket fence and you know then you're doing it right and so I guess like growing up I always thought like my life would go a certain way. And when it didn't, I just felt like less than. And so I worked really hard, like my whole life to try to like create this picture of what I wanted to present to people. Um, and then I just started realizing like, that's not really helpful for people. Mm. Like I can't relate to people like that. And I want my story to help people. Like, you know, if someone would have come alongside me, like anywhere along my journey and said like, Hey, I've been there too. And like, you got this, like, and just cheerleaded me on instead of me always feeling like I'm trying to attain this, like, in like perfect life that doesn't exist. Right. Um, like it would have done me a better service. So I think I'm just like tired of trying to be perfect and pretending that I have it all together because nobody does. Mm. And I think if like, we all just stop pretending, then we can start healing. Absolutely. Well, let's go all the way back then, since you're, you know, saying you're ready, you want to, you want to be that voice of someone who could say, I didn't have it all together. And yet today I am okay. Let's go back. Tell us, tell us those parts that you have kept hidden for the majority of your life, maybe starting with your mom being pregnant. So my mom, um, came to Canada. I'm from Canada she came here when she was 17 years old and um, my dad was 43. So now as a, as an adult right away, I'm like, that's gross. Um, <laughs> <laughs> gross. But um, yeah, she came from Austria, didn't speak a word of English, um, came over here and gave birth to me. I think she was like seven months pregnant when she came. And um, so, you know, right away, my home life was not great. Um, my dad was, I, I've never met, really met him. I don't know him. Um, but I'm told that he was physically and verbally abusive. And, um, you know, I think as my mom was like learning English, she really relied on him. And so she couldn't leave and stayed in that relationship. But, um, she had one more, uh, daughter, my sister. And then shortly after that, um, they, she left him. Uh, obviously I was like two years old, so I don't like remember. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I guess what happened was she put us in foster home, which I didn't find out until I was a lot older, um, that we were even in foster home. And it was an accident that I found out through a worker. Um, but yeah, she put us in foster home and then, um, and then she met my dad. When I say my dad now, she met my stepdad who I refer to as my dad. Um, she started going to church. She met him in church. And then he was like, Oh, you should get your kids back. Um, and so I guess they, they got me back. And then that was, that was the beginning, I guess. Well, and in that season, you say that your life was pretty normal and seemingly happy. Is that true? Yeah. Like I don't have any memory. Like I have vague memories probably from when I'm like four years old, like, uh, like a few memories. Right. And I actually think I have one memory of like my real dad and my mom fighting. I think it was like a really traumatic fight. And I remember like my mom screaming and a neighbor coming out, but like, I don't remember like seeing his face or what he looked like or anything. Um, but yeah, then when my mom met my stepdad, it seemed like there was a period of time where like life was great looking back. Right. Like we had no money, obviously we were so poor. Um, my mom and my stepdad had, um, three more kids. So I had two, uh, brothers and another sister. And so there was five of us and my mom didn't work. My dad worked for minimum wage at like a jam factory working night shift. And like, we really had no money. We had nothing, but like, I remember going to church and, you know, doing things with my mom and she really tried to make the best for us during that time. Like, you know, we did a lot of time, spent a lot of time at the library and, you know, church youth groups and stuff. And yeah, things were good. Well, did that last or, you know, what happened? What changed? I, I've read some of your stories, so I know that this good, happy season didn't last the entirety of your childhood. What happened next? Yeah. So I guess I was probably about 12 years old and, you know, things started to take a turn for the worst. Like looking back, I have like a lot more insight of what happened, but in the time, like as a child, like I just remember like things changing and my mom pulling away from us as a family and, um, just kind of like chaos ensuing. Like I remember one day, like my mom was just gone and I was like, okay, that was weird. No one ever said anything. Like it wasn't like someone sat us down and said like, your mom's leaving. Like she was just gone. And, um, I'm the oldest. So my youngest brother would have been like five years old. And my, uh, sister was, uh, six and my other brother was seven. So like, I just remember like kind of becoming like a mom to them and kind of like taking care of them. And my mom, my mom's family was coming from Austria to visit. And so she came back for a little bit. And I just thought she was back. Like, I didn't know that she had like moved back into kind of playhouse. Um, but I guess shortly after they arrived, they kind of realized some things were happening and she left again. Um, and then it came out that, you know, she decided that she was a lesbian mm. and didn't want to be in the marriage anymore. And I think like as an adult now, I think like maybe she must've just, I, I don't know. She came to a point where she just like couldn't do it anymore and walked away from everything. And that kind of just left us with nobody because my dad was like totally traumatized and dealing with like the loss of his wife. And we again had no money. And so like going into the fridge and there'd just be like zero food, like nothing. There'd be like opening the freezer and there's like a few like green peas like that fell out of the bag that were like frozen crusty on the bottom of the freezer. 
um, and just having like nothing and then like trying to manage that as a kid I didn't know how to do laundry Mm. like someone else did my laundry my whole life no one was doing my laundry now Mm. and so knowing like the moment that my mom was like different was she used to always take us to the mall with her if she was going out to the mall and I like loved that because it was like a time for us to be together I felt like grown up and special and I remember one time walking with her down to the bus stop and she was going to the mall and she was like no you can't come and I was so crushed like I was like what and she was just like no and got on the bus and left me there and I was just like heartbroken right like and I think that was the moment where I realized that like like something shifted and like I kind of knew like nothing was ever going to be the same again so our our home totally started to crumble my dad had a lot of family like an hour away from us and they were going to step in they wanted like one of us to go live uh with my aunt and uncle um they lived in like a pretty wealthy community um something that I wasn't really used to again where we grew up was like the ghetto like it was poverty stricken area um so anyways um I remember my mom and dad like my mom had moved out at this point she had came back come back and she sat me and my sister down and she said one of or she asked my sister to go stay with my aunt and uncle for a little bit and I don't even know why I just said like I'll do it and the agreement was that it would be like temporary and again I'm like 12 years old right I have no idea like I'm just like yeah I'll go do it whatever um I thought that I was like helping my family Mm. so I went and it was like total culture shock like they were wealthy people I mean they lived within their means and they weren't flashy or by any means but they had money like they made breakfast every morning and I remember the first morning coming down and I think my aunt was like had orange juice on the table and there's eggs and bacon and I was like the heck like it was so weird it was like being like Pleasantville like I felt like I just walked into that movie and was just like like shot back to like 1950 where like everything was perfect and like you know that ad that they talk about and but yeah, it was really, really, really weird. Did they weird. have kids in the home? Um, so they had two older uh, boys, my cousins, who were in um, college, I think, oh, okay. at the time. So they came back to visit. So it was just me. Okay. But um, I would guess you're 12 years old, and you were going from one complete world to a different world, having your heart broken because your mom left you and your siblings, but it had to be very personal. I can't imagine the transition into their home, no matter how much they loved you or cared about you or wanted to love you. It couldn't have been easy. I would think your defenses would go up, your uncertainty, your all of the emotions at any age, let alone 12. Yeah, I was going to say 12-year-old girl on top of that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, 12 is like a horrible age for any girl, like even without trauma, right? So... I was dealing with like trying to figure out who I was and you know these were my stepdad's family and so somewhere in the back of my mind I always felt like I wasn't really their family um like there was no blood so why would they want me like this must be like I I must be a charity case or there's no like my own mom didn't want me so why would they want me um and then also I was dealing with like leaving my brothers and sisters like we were really close Mm -hmm. and like, it was really hard for me to leave, like, especially my younger brother, um, who was five, like, you know, I remember I would like take my allowance and like, take them down to the sub shop and like get a six inch sub and like split it in three and then like save a quarter for the gumball. Like, I just loved spending time with them and wanting to do stuff with them. And so to be like, it was an hour and a tw- an hour and 20 minute drive away to be that far. 
And like, again, there was no email, there was no internet, like there was no contact, right? It wasn't like now where I can just like pop up on Facebook and be like, oh, look at them, they're doing great. Like I had no clue, were they being cared for? Like, was someone looking after them? You know, was someone helping them? So that was like super hard for me um, and not having any contact with them. And then, you know, transitioning to a new school, you know, I remember my aunt and uncle um, registered me as like, not my last name, but as their last name. And so like, I know they meant well, because it was like a very respected name in the community, but it wasn't me. It wasn't my name. And so like, it made me feel like I wasn't good enough as the person I was coming there. Like I had to be different. Mm -hmm. And so again, it just further like concreted in me that like, I wasn't good enough. Yeah. I just remember like crying myself to sleep at night, like wishing my mom was there. Um, I, I think I lived there for about a year. And then, um, I remember they went they were going on a family trip to Florida and like the thought of being like on a family vacation with them just like was torture for me. And I mean, they're so lovely. They're like the most loveliest people. I love them so much, but like it had nothing to do with them. Like I was like a leaky bucket. I always say like, you know, it doesn't matter what they poured into me. It was coming right out the other end. I didn't, there's no way I just would not believe that they loved me like Mm -hmm. because of what I'd been through. Um, And so I just thought like, I can't be in a, tr- a car with them for 24 hours playing house. Like, this is horrible. Like, and so I told them that I was going to stay with my dad. Um, and actually during that time, my dad had moved up to the area and I didn't even know, no one told me. So I just found out from like someone else that like my brothers and sisters were now living like 10 minutes away. And I remember being so hurt about that because I was like, that's my family. And you didn't tell me, Yeah. like, mm-hmm. I just felt so far removed. Like they just forgot about me. And didn't care. And I'm sure like they were just dealing with their trauma and whatever and like doing the best they could dealing with what happened to them. But like, it really hurt me. And so I just like kind of closed off and shut down. And um, yeah, I just remember telling them that I was going to go to my dad's house for the week and then telling my dad that I was going to go to Florida for a week. And then I just like stayed at the house. Like when they left, I let myself back in through a window and I ended up having like a ton of people over. And then they came back. I tried to clean it up, but it, it didn't work. And um, they were just like, yeah, you can't live here anymore. And so I was really happy that like I was going to be back with my dad now. And so I was living there and it was me and my sister, like all of us, all five of us were there with my dad and my grandma. And um, I remember I got a job uh, back in like Hamilton, where I was originally from as a camp counselor at this church. And it was my first job. I was 14, 13. It was like an underage counselor, like counselor in training. So I'd gone there and I was staying with a friend and I did that for three weeks. And then, you know, my dad came to pick me up at the end of the three weeks. And like, he was acting super weird. And like my, my dad, like has, he's just the kindest person. Like he doesn't have a horrible bone in his body. Like, and I'm assuming that like his family thought this was best and kind of told him what was going to happen. And I remember him like acting really weird and he had all my stuff in his car. And I'm like, that's so weird. Why does he have all my stuff? And he said, you know, like we decided, like the family decided that your mom should really be caring for you, um, not us. And so you're going to go with her. And I was like, okay, but nobody talked to my mom. No one told her this and she wasn't even in town. And so they just left me at the house that I was at staying with. And I remember the mom being like, it's okay. Like you can stay here. Like all my stuff on their porch. She's like, just until we get a hold of your mom, it's fine. And like, she was a Christian and like, I mean, so much of my story comes back to her because she was in, she was incredible. Like she, 
Okay, yeah, Lila, who was she? The mom, you said, who was that? So she was my, like, my dad's best friend's wife. And she actually knew my mom when she first came to Canada, she met my mom and they were friends. And that's how, like, they kind of became friends with my parents. And when my mom left, they kind of stayed with my dad and supported him. And she's a devout Christian. Like, I mean, she, like, I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So um, she was a, her. she was a safe place for you, for your mom, even. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For our whole family. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember even growing up, she never had any money either. And we would be going swimming. And she's like looking in the couch cushions to find the extra two bucks so that she could bring me, you know. Um, but yeah, so then they let she my dad left me on her porch. And she was just like, it's okay. Like, you know, call your mom and they'll figure it out. And so like back then there was no cell phones. So I remember calling and leaving a voicemail on my mom's phone, just saying like, yeah, dad left me in Hamilton. Apparently I'm living with you. And had you had any comfort, had you been having any communication with her leading up to that? No, none. Oh. And so, um, she had moved in with a woman that she met in nursing school. She went back to school to be a nurse. And I mean, the way I understood it is they just didn't want to have kids living there. Um, and so, Oh, yeah, she she had her own apartment and I didn't have any contact with her hardly at all. So she came and picked me up and like, instead of taking me to her house, she drove me back the hour and 20 minutes in the middle of the night to my dad's house. Mm. And we got there at like midnight and, you know, they're banging on the door and my dad and my grandma are like, don't answer the door. And my mom's like yelling, like, you are responsible for her. Like, you have to take care of her. And they're saying like, no, she's your kid. Like you care for her. And I'm just like sitting there. Wow. Right. And I'm like, if you can't get any lower than that, right. Like the people in your life that are supposed to care for you are literally fighting over who's going to have you. And so I just remember like I'm calling the police and the police coming and it was just a super traumatic like situation. I ended up going back home with my mom. And then the next day it was either the next day or the day after she called like children's aid. I don't know. Like, I think it's called social services in the States, but, um, and I remember her crying out front in the parking lot being like, I'm sorry. Like, I just can't do this right now. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, neither can I, but like, I'm the one getting carted off to a group home. So anyways, I went to a group home and, and then I, I was in foster care. Your foster care. I know you were, you ran away from it several times until you're, your this what we would call the social worker gave up on you and just let you go when you were what 16 years of age so you were in and out of foster homes until finally they said we can't find her anymore is that correct yeah so i remember my foster uh social worker had come and i remember she dropped me off at this house back in the area where i had originally came from in this like you know ghetto they called it and they bring me to the house and the lady that's supposed to be my new foster mom is chain smoking on the couch. And she's like 600 pounds. And she's got this like oversized t-shirt with like stains all over it. Like li worse than any place I had ever come from. And I was just like, you're leaving me here. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like I didn't know anything about the foster system, but I just assumed that like it would be better than where I came from, but it wasn't. Um, and I remember her taking this like Polaroid of me and being like, sticking it to the wall there was a whole wall of all these like teenage girls and she goes this is the picture I'm going to give to the police when you run away 
so they can find you. And I, like, that was my welcome to the home. Right. (laughs) Like, okay, great. So I'm thinking, I think I lasted there. Like she would lock us in the basement at night. There was like five beds in the basement and she would like deadbolt us down there. And there was an alarm system. So you couldn't get out. But this other girl that I was with figured out how to like disconnect the alarm from the window. So we would climb out the basement window at night and then we'd sneak back in the morning. And then eventually like, I just ran away. Like I couldn't, I didn't want to be there. It was horrible. And I ran away. I was like, at first I was just like sleeping on friends' couches, like, you know, and then eventually that got old because any of the friends that I had, the decent parents were like, this girl can't sleep on our couch. Like, um, and so, you know, I'd get picked up by the police and brought to another group home. Eventually, I think I was like 15. They just stopped looking for you. Um, and I didn't see my worker from probably I was 15 years old. I, I never even saw her to close my case. Like she didn't know if I was dead or alive. She just closed my file. So. <sighs> All right. <Okay>. I can't <laughs> imagine the, the layers of rejection a 15 year old girl would be at that, have at that point. You've got to have thought, I've got to find someone to connect to. I've got to find some kind of family. And you did on the streets. Yeah. Um, I ended up, I don't even know how, but I met this, well, I, I ended up going to this, um, this group home. It wasn't a group home. You could eat there. It was like a youth, uh, drop-in center. You could go and you could eat meals there. They had a couple beds, but like, I didn't live there and all the street kids would come. Right. Cause that's like where you ate. And I remember I met this guy and you know, he was so sweet and kind and, um, made me feel good. Right. And so like, I clung to him. Like, I was like, this guy cares about me. Right. This is it. This is where my life's going to change. Um, and so he got me in with his friends and it was like a gang on the streets and, you know, we did all kinds of stupid things. I started doing drugs and honestly, like the more drugs I did, the more I wanted to do because I didn't want to come down. Right. Like I didn't want to face my reality. And I eventually was like 80 pounds, like just bones. Um, I overdosed multiple times, was in the hospital. Like I should have died. I actually should have died. Yeah. I just did as many drugs as I could and whatever, like I had to do to get them. Um, but I did kind of feel like I was part of a family, right? Like we were all these kind of kids who had been rejected but we had each other, like we were going to stick together. And so that was like the first time in a long time that I had actually felt like connected to anybody. Um, but obviously for the wrong reasons and it was not good for me, but. About how long would you say you were a part of this crew? A couple of years, honestly, it's a blur. It's really hard to like pinpoint in this time, that time, any one like specific moment because I was so high the whole time. Like it all just blurred together. Um, but I rem- I got arrested. Um, I spent time in juvenile, like in like juvie. Um, and then I would just get back out and do as many drugs as I could to forget about it. Um, and obviously this guy was not a good guy, right? Like he didn't treat me well, um, but he always came back. So like I stuck with him, right? Um, so then another twist you were pregnant. You found out you were pregnant. Yeah. When I was 16, I, I hadn't got my period in a while. And, and I remember 
like one of the nurses at this place where we would go and eat, um, like checking in on me once in a while, she would like try to pull us in and, and check in on us. And she would ask you these questions and you're just like, whatever, you just wanted to eat, right. You just did whatever so you could get the food and leave. And, um, she said, Oh, okay. Like we should do a pregnancy test. And I'm, I'm like, what? Like, I never even thought like it did not, like, I don't even think I had learned about like anything about that. Like that did not cross my mind. Like I know people now are like, Oh, like those kids should use protection. Like literally was not even a thought like that I could get pregnant. I obviously knew how it worked, but I never ever thought that would happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just like thinking like how dumb this was that she was even suggesting this. And she took me into her little office and it was like, she always had the lights off. And I like, most people would be like, oh, you must've been so afraid, like thinking about what if I'm pregnant? And I'm like, no, I was a kid. Like, I didn't even know what that meant. So I was sitting in her office and I remember thinking, why is she sitting in the dark all the time? Like, you know, I went and whatever, did what I had to do. And she was waiting for the stick. She, she put it away and put a timer on, which again, to me now looking back is so dumb. Cause I'm like, that thing comes right up. If you're pregnant, like the plus signs immediately there. Like you did not need to make me wait two minutes of my life in that room. But um, yeah, she, she was sitting there. I was sitting there awkwardly. We didn't even talk. I'm thinking, okay, this room's so dark. Why doesn't she have light in here? This is awkward. All right, what am I going to do after this? And then I remember her like rolling around in her little wheelie chair and looking at the pregnancy test. And she's like, okay, you're pregnant. And like, I think I remember like her being afraid looking, but I was like, okay, bye. Like it's fries day in the cafeteria. I'm going to go get some fries. Like, and yeah, I wasn't scared at all. I didn't think anything of it at all. Um, Thankfully, like by the grace of God, like I think I, I just knew that I probably shouldn't be doing drugs and alcohol at this time. Mm. And so I didn't thank thank God because um, I don't know why, like, I really don't. I just was like, okay, like, that's what you do when you get pregnant. You don't drink, you don't do drugs. And so I didn't, um, which was also difficult because like the father was still doing all those things. Right. And so um, I ended up getting um, an apartment, like this lady at that uh, center helped me get an apartment it ended up just being like a drug house. <laughs> like all the kids that were now on the streets came to do their drugs, but I put like a little crib in there and, mm-hmm. you know, um, I was going to make it work. So yeah, I didn't think about anything at that time. You just thought I'm going to have this baby and life's going to be fine and I'll figure it out at 16 years of age. Yeah. And you know, like, honestly, ab- abortion was presented to me and I didn't have any certain way about it or not at that time but I remember telling my mom and her saying like her freaking out and her being like you've ruined your life like all these th- things you're getting an abortion we're going next week and you're going to get this abortion and I remember thinking like oh this is something that you can't make me do mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. I literally just said I'm not getting an abortion just so that she couldn't tell me what to do and I wouldn't give in to her and so that was like my reasoning why I didn't do it like i there was no like epiphany, like I should have this baby. It was like, you're telling me I can't have it while I'm having it. (laughs) So you did, you had your little girl, right? Yeah. I had my daughter Felicity and then it hit me. Hmm. I was like, I had just given birth. It was like 27 hours of labor and my entire labor, the nurses were just treating me so badly. 
Um, I think they just kind of like, was like, oh, here's this teen pregnancy, like this poor child, like, you know, why are you having this baby kind of thing? Um, and I really felt that, like I could feel the judgment from them. Um, and then I remember them putting her in our room, my room after, and my mom had come and like, no matter what happened between me and my mom, like when you're in labor and you have a baby, like you want your mom. Mm. And so I remember being like, I need my mom. And she was like, well, I'm leaving. I'm like, what do you mean you're leaving? Like, you can't leave me. She's like, you have a baby now. You're a mom now. And then I was just like, "Ah!" like it hit me, like everything. And it was too late at that point, right? Like I, I was there in this moment. Um, But that's when I realized like, oh crap. Like, what 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 have I done? I have this like human that I have no idea what to do with. I have no money. I have nobody. Um, And yeah, that kind of messed me up. So what'd you do? Did you give her up? Did you keep her? What'd you do, Lila? Um, so I went back to this apartment with her. I was determined. And I, cause I remember my mom being like, you're just going to be like asking us for help and all this stuff. So I was like, I'm not going to make her be right. Like I'm doing this. So I went back to this apartment and I remember having her and all these people would be like doing drugs and partying in the other room. And I'd be like in this little bedroom with her, just rocking her and trying to figure it out. Um, And I remember it must've been like a couple months. I got really, really sick. I had like, um, I think it was like Norwalk virus or something, but it was just like horrible. There was a huge snowstorm and I was deathly ill. And I remember just thinking, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm, I'm raising my white flag. I packed her up and I, I walked like 45 minutes to my mom's house. And I knocked on the door and she was like, yeah, okay, you can come in. You can come in here, and but we're going to have rules and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, but that didn't last. Like we had such a like torturous relationship up until that point that like it was just doomed right from the day one. Mm-hmm. And I ended up calling Children's Aid on myself. I called them one day and I just said, I can't do this anymore. Like you have to come take her, my daughter. And so they sent someone out and the lady was trying to talk to me. And I just said, like, I can't, like, I'm, I'm done. And so she said, okay, well, we'll just leave her with your mom for now. And I was like, what? That's not what I wanted. Like, I don't want you to give her to her. Like she screwed me up. Like, this is why I'm here. And now you want to give my kid to her. And so I was like, I take it back. And then, you know, that's too late. They're like, no, it's too late. Like, like now, once you've opened that door, you can't go back. And so um, I ended up going back to drugs for a little bit. I, I was like, so just wrecked at that point. Like I had given up my daughter who I thought I would never let happen. Anything happened to her that happened to me. Right. And so I just like spiraled, totally spiraled, um, went into like just a hot, I was a hot mess. Yeah. I mean, I keep waiting for the turn to come where, (laughs) something let up what where when's the good part Lila tell us tell us where the turn happened yeah so um you know going back to this this woman who was like my safe place I can remember like being totally stoned out of my mind on the streets and her walking by and being like oh my gosh Lila and like can I pray for you for a minute like in the middle of the street in the middle of the day and I'm looking at her like lady are you nuts And she's like, 
it'll just take a minute. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. And I'm not listening to a word she says, right? And she's like putting her hands on me in the middle of like traffic, praying for me. And I'm like, this this lady's crazy. <laughs> so anyways, she, but she would do that every time she saw me. And so I was downtown one day and I hadn't seen like my daughter's dad. I, I didn't talk to him anymore. Uh, he had nothing to do with her. He didn't want anything to do with her. And uh, he says to me, this is really weird. I bumped into him and he said, this is really weird. But this crazy lady came up to me and gave me this flyer. I knew right away who he was talking about. He told her that he would not see me. Um, he didn't have contact with me anymore. And she said, well, if you just see her, like, just take this flyer and give it to her. And so, like, he ended up bumping into me, like, a minute later. And as soon as I, un like, folded the flyer, it was, like, this fo photocopied black and white flyer. And it said, like, come now for your free deliverance and healing. And I'm, like, I knew. I'm, like, okay, this is, she gave it to him, right? This is crazy. It was about this um, pastor from Nigeria who was traveling all across the world and doing these, like, little healing, like, uh, sessions. And I guess he had rented out a storefront in, like, the worst part of town was only there for five days was doing this, like the service and, you know, putting out these flyers to come. I'm like, there's no way I'm coming to this stupid thing. Like I, I laughed. I'm like, okay, this is hilarious. I'm not going to this deliver. I actually made fun of the guy. I'm like healing deliverance, whatever. And I crumbled it up in my bag and I didn't even think about it. Well, the day of that service, I'm sitting there and it's like burning this hole in my pocket, this paper. And I'm actually like telling myself, like, why do you care? Like, stop thinking about it. Right. And I, I take it out and I, I see the date and I see it starts at seven o'clock and I'm like looking at my watch, like, oh, I could get there. And then I'm like, why would I go there? Like, stop. Like I'm arguing with myself. Right. <laughs> Anyways, I just kept going. Like I started going towards the bus stop and I'm like at the bus stop and the bus that normally stops at that stop doesn't stop. It goes right past me. So I'm like, okay, that's a sign I'm not supposed to go. This place is dumb. I'm not going, right? <laughs> well, then my body just starts like walking to the next bus stop. And I'm like, why am I doing this, right? But something in me was like, I think it was just like a tiny flicker of hope. Like maybe someone can help me. But I wasn't like accepting that. But my body was like accepting it. It was like running to the next bus stop. So then um, I got on the bus, I get there, I'm late now because I'd missed that bus. He's in the middle of, of preaching and there's only like six people, right, that showed up. Mm -hmm. I open the door and I come in and he like stops everything and just stares at me and I'm like, oh crap, like, what, what's <laughs> happening? And he's like, you, come here. And he has this thick like accent that I won't try and do because I won't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's like, come here. And I'm like looking behind me, right? I'm like, me? Like, And he's like, yes, get up here right now. So I go up. And like, I can't even really remember exactly what he said, but he put his hands on me and he just started praying. And he started saying like, God knows all these things that I had not shared with anybody, like very specific details about what had happened to me on the streets, mm -hmm. things that had been done to me, um, that there's no way, like there's absolutely no way that anyone could have even told him. And he said, God does not have, this is not who you are. This is not God's plan for your life. And I'm sobbing, like hysterically sobbing in front of all these people I don't even know. And mm -hmm. like, I think at one point I ended up falling on the ground and I'm just like laying there sobbing hysterically. And like, it felt like everything that had ever hurt me had been, was coming out. That's the only way I can describe it. Like, like it was like, as if he was pulling out every rejection, every shame, every fear, like God was taking it out 
And it, I must've been up there for about an hour. Like I just totally hijacked the whole service. <laughs> and he was like, listen, and he's like, God has a plan for you. Like and going on and on. And I accepted Jesus in my heart and I was totally, 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 totally different. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember him saying like, you're done. You're not doing drugs anymore. You've been healed. Um, he said, your life right now is about to go on a very different path. And it was like instant. Like I was, I felt so free. I felt like, like for the first time ever, I connected with something like God, right? No, I wasn't dependent on a person. Um, and I felt like it was amazing. It was the best feeling ever. There's a quote of yours, Lila, that I absolutely love. God doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life, and makes him alive. I absolutely love that, and your life demonstrates it. Can you tell us a little bit about new life, where you went to next? What was the next section? Because God obviously had pulled you from the deepest point of despair that I would say the majority of our listeners have never experienced. And we hope no one ever experiences, but God pulled you from there. Yeah. um, You know, I, I was probably at rock bottom. Like, I don't think I could have gotten any lower. Um, Like I, I did not care if I lived or died at all. And so I kind of sometimes wished I did would die. That's what I would think because it would be easier. Yeah. After that day, I, I left that service and I felt free, but like my mind and my body was free, but nothing around me had physically changed. Right. And so I remember like my friends who I surrounded myself with were still doing drugs and stuff, but I had zero desire. Like it repulsed me. And so like that didn't last long. Right. I, I, um, I ended up going back with him to that service every night. And I started bringing people, I started bringing people off the streets. I mean, you got to come meet this guy. Um, and people were getting saved and, and, uh, after he left, I kind of was like, no, now what? (laughs) And God had to remind me like, no, it wasn't him. It was me. Right. Like I did this through him. And so, yeah, I mean, long story short, I, I got my daughter back. I went to school. I put myself through high school got my education, got my post-secondary education. Um, uh, I met my husband who's incredible, prayed for my husband because I got involved in a church and, um, I remember my youth pastor saying like, write a list and start praying. But I still had so much shame, right? Mm. Like I still hadn't been delivered from that because I thought that, you know, everything that had happened to me, like who's going to want to marry me, Mm. right? Like I'm stained. I have kids from different dads and I have um, all this history. Like that doesn't fit the like meet your husband in high school, go to college and get a white picket fence, right? And so for years, I still had all that shame, right? Um, wasn't like it went away overnight. Like a lot of things did go away overnight that night, but I still have this child, right? And imagine you're like 19 years old going to kindergarten, meet the teacher night. Yeah. And all the moms are like 35 and they're driving their cars and I'm, you know, getting on the bus and they think I'm her sister. Oh, how nice of you to bring your sister. And I'm like, actually, no, I'm her mom. Oh, how old are you? Yeah, do the math. Like, that's the first thing people always ask me, oh, how old are you? And I'm like, really? Do you want to like hash this out? Like right here? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it took me a long time to realize that 
you know, who God says I am is a lot different than who people might say I am. And I don't need people's validation to, for God to work in my life. And if they want to come alongside me, then that's great. But if not, that's also great because when God's going to do something in your life, it doesn't matter what the people around you have to say about it. And if God's going to open a door for you, he's going to open that door, whether or not the people around you are in support of it or not. Um, and so that was, that was a long, like 20 year journey for me. Um, I always think of it as a backpack I was carrying with all these like heavy weights, you know, over time, like I learned to like put some of them down, but, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult. And I did end up meeting an amazing person. And it's funny. Cause I remember saying to him, like, Oh, I always thought like you wouldn't like find me attractive or like with all this baggage. And he's like, actually like the fact that you had kids made me love you even more. He's like, I got to see you as a mom. Like I got to see that side of you. He's like, some guys like don't get to see that side. And you know, then they marry someone and they have kids and they're like, Oh, she's a terrible mother. Like, you know, (laughs) which I knew, (laughs) but, uh, but no, like he was like, that actually made me more attracted to you. But I didn't know that. And I'm like, in my mind, I have this like filter on. I'm like, Oh, you must like think this about me. You must think that. And so just learning to like know who I am in Christ and not value other people's opinions of me so much. I love that you're basically, you know, preaching the, the truth that your past does not define you. And that as long as you're still here, your story isn't over and there is hope and, you know, God can turn it around. I'm thinking of that John Reddick song. And that's exactly what has happened in your life. Is there, is there any one thing you would want our listeners to take away from hearing your bravery and sharing your story? Yeah, I think that the one thing that I would, I would just say is like, it does not matter what you've done. Like it doesn't matter. Like whatever you're thinking of and you're listening to my story and you're saying, yeah, but no, there's no buts. God can and wants to do anything. He can't, like he wants to make us beautiful. Like he wants to give us the life that we always dreamed of. And even the life we never dreamed of. I never dreamed that I would be here, like ever, you know, living where I live. I have an amazing job. You know, I spent a lot of time working with youth on on the streets through my work that I never would have dreamed that I could be here. And so like wherever you find yourself today in whatever situation and whatever your past, like God can make it beautiful Mm -hmm. and he can take that mess and turn it into something that you cannot imagine. Um, So don't even try, just, just give him your mess and he'll fix it. And what I love about that is like, so often I talk to people and they say, oh, you know, like I'll go to church when I do this, this, and this, and I, I get my life in a little bit better shape and the place won't burn down when I walk through the door. And I'm like, no, the place should be burning down when you walk mm-hmm. through the door. Like, mm-hmm. that's the kind of mess that God loves. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have it all together, God's like, okay, you don't need me. But God loves to display his glory through people. Why? So that we don't get the glory. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could have put myself back together. God got the glory, right? And he loves that. And so I say the messier, the better, because it gives more glory to God. And so um, there's literally nothing that you could say that would make me believe God couldn't turn it around. You look at the companions that walked with Jesus when he walked this earth and they weren't, they weren't the unmessy ones. They weren't the, the important ones. They were not the ones that said, we've got it all figured out. They were the ones that were the messy ones that had the challenging lives that came from all different circumstances. And that's who God loves. And I think part of it is 
when we realize that we aren't that perfect person, that we need him, he's there to meet us. He is absolutely there to meet us. And I think, Lila, your story should inspire anyone who has that doubt, who has the question that they may not be worth it, they may not be worthy, they may not be redeemable. That is absolutely not true. Lila, thank you so much for being willing to give us that hope today to, you know, go against what you might have thought when you were growing up that you you shouldn't share, you shouldn't, you know, bear this part of your life, but instead to, like you said, give all the glory to God for all the things that he has done in your life for cleaning up your mess, as you said it. So thank you so much for encouraging me as I got to hear it today, and I'm sure encouraging so many more. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to close with this Bible verse. It comes from Philippians 3.13. This is the Apostle Paul talking. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I feel like that's definitely what Lila has done, and I hope that she has encouraged all of us to embrace that grit and grace life today as well. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Grit and Grace Life. Make sure you've subscribed and rated and reviewed the show so more friends can find us. You can also share about this episode on your social media or send it to a friend you think it could help. You can find everything we talked about in this episode on our website, gritandgracelife.com, where you'll also find plenty of other articles from other women answering questions you may have.